This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 25, with G. Edward Griffin. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hello, everyone. MC Lobster, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. Now, on episode four with Manish Bindi, we talked about money, currency, and fiat currency, and also talked about the history of money and the monetary systems and touched a little bit on central banking. We talked about how the world's money system changes every 30 to 40 years, and we touched on central banking, but we didn't really get into depth on central banking because I first wanted to focus on money, currency, fiat currency, you know, what people actually use every day and something that we use every day to transact to explain what money is and how it works. You know, I thought that if I jumped straight into central banking, that it would overwhelm listeners because I was overwhelmed first when I started looking into all of this and studying how money and currency and fiat currency and central banking works. So, if you've not listened to episode four with Minesh Bindi, I would highly recommend it since we are going to be building on the information from that episode. In the episode, we discuss why we have unsound money and why we have a dishonest money system. The US dollar is the world's reserve currency and since 1971 has not been backed by anything but the confidence in the US dollar. So if all the countries in the world out there are fiat currencies backed by the U.S. dollar, which is also a fiat currency backed by nothing, how's money created? It's now when we have that matrix moment where you need to decide between the red or the blue pill, because what you're about to discover is not taught in any schools or any universities, and that's for good reason. Again, I'm a huge fan of the Socratic method of provoking thought. I'm not telling you what to believe. So please, please, please do your own research and form your own opinion. Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, said, It's well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and money system. For if they did, I believe that there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. My guest today, Mr. G. Edward Griffin, as a historian, documentary, filmmaker, author, lecturer, and truth seeker. And he wrote the book that really woke up myself and many others, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. It took Mr. Griffin seven years to research the subject matter, and his book is incredible. It's packed with footnotes, references, resources, and it, he documented everything extremely well and how he came across the, the information that he writes about, etc. So it's really well documented. I first heard of Mr. Griffin's book when it was recommended by Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Now, the Federal Reserve Bank was the third central bank created in the United States in 1913 by the Federal Reserve Act that was signed into law by Woodrow Wilson. It was created in secret on Jekyll Island by banking giants and Senator Nelson Aldrich. The Federal Reserve admits this on their website. Bloomberg even wrote an article about this. The secret meeting that launched the Federal Reserve echoes, naming everybody that's involved. And the hotel even today on Jekyll Island has a brass plate on the door of the room that these bankers met in to create the Federal Reserve system. The hotel also is an archive full of notes and pictures of all the people that attended the meeting. 
Not a lot of people know that there were other central banks before the Federal Reserve was established in 1913 in the United States. And they all ended with their charters not renewed. This has been the biggest battle in the United States since the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, the battle over who controls the money supply in the country. In 1790, Meyer Amschel Rothschild said, Let me issue and control the money of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. As I mentioned in Episode 4, the United States have had their experience with failed fiat currencies, the Continental Dollar, which was printed and issued by the Continental Congress, until it was basically worthless, hence the saying, not worth the Continental, and also during the Civil War where the Union had the Greenback and the Confederate States had the Grayback, both controlled and issued by their separate Congresses, both ended pretty much worthless. The colonies did have a successful money experience with a paper currency called the Colonial Script. Before the war, the colonies sent Benjamin Franklin to England to represent their interest. Franklin was greatly surprised by the amount of poverty and high unemployment in England. It just didn't make sense, he said. England was the richest country in the world, but the working class was impoverished. The streets are covered with beggars and tramps. It is said that he asked his friends in England how this could be. And they replied that they had too many workers. Many believed that wars and plague were necessary to rid the country from the manpower surpluses. Benjamin Franklin said, We have no poor houses in the colonies, and if we had some, there would be nobody to put in them, since there is, in the colonies, not a single unemployed person, neither beggars nor tramps. He was asked why the working class in the colonies were so prosperous, And this is what Benjamin Franklin said. He said, that is simple. In the colonies, we issue our own paper money. It is called colonial script. We issue it in proper proportion to make the goods and pass easily from the producers to the consumers. In this manner, creating ourselves our own paper money, we control its purchasing power, and we have no interest to pay to no one. Soon afterward, the English bankers demanded that the king and parliament pass a law that prohibited the colonies from using their script money. Only gold and silver could be used, which would be provided by the English bankers. This began the plague of debt-based money in the colonies that had cursed the English working class. The first law was passed in 1751, and then a harsher law was passed in 1763. Franklin claimed that within one year, the colonies were filled with unemployed and beggars, just like in England, because there was not enough money to pay for the goods and work. The money supply had been cut in half. Franklin, who was one of the chief architects of the American independence, wrote, The colonies would gladly have borne the little tax on tea and other matters had it not been that England took away from the colonies their money, which created unemployment and dissatisfaction. The inability of the colonists to get power to issue their own money permanently out of the hands of George III was the prime reason for the Revolutionary War. One of the biggest Differences of opinion and debates was over who would control the money supply in the new independent country. Two figures that strongly opposed each other was Robert Morris's understudy, Alexander Hamilton, and Thomas Jefferson. Other figures that opposed the national bank that would be a central bank controlling the money supply was James Madison and John Adams. In 1781, before the Constitutional Convention, Robert Morris was allowed to open a private bank, the Bank of North America and the bank was allowed to implement fractional reserve banking practices. 
The private bank had a monopoly over the currency, and the value of the currency fell sharply in four years. So much so that its charter was not renewed after four years because of the opposition to it. Alexander Hamilton and his mentor, Robert Morris, persisted and pushed for a central bank, even though the Bank of North America was a disaster. This was the time for one of the biggest showdowns between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Jefferson, in debating Hamilton, remarked, If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. James Madison also added to this debate, History records that the money changers have used every form of abuse, intrigue, deceit, and violent means possible to maintain the, their control over governments by controlling the money and its issuance. And Jefferson's friend John Adams also added, Banks have done more injury to the religion, morality, tranquility, prosperity, and even wealth of the nation than they can have done or ever will do good. The Constitution was really silent on paper money, but recognized gold and silver as the only money. After an intense philosophical battle in 1790, just three years after the Constitution was signed, Alexander Hamilton was successful. In 1791, the first bank of the United States with a 20-year charter was created. It was headquartered in Philadelphia. 80% of its stock was privately owned, and some of them were foreign investors, and 20% of its stock was owned actually by the federal government. A couple of things happened during that time that is relative in how this battle with the bank played out. In 1800, Thomas Jefferson narrowly defeated John Adams to become president. And in 1803, Napoleon sold Louisiana to Thomas Jefferson in the Louisiana Purchase for $3 million. Napoleon now had enough money to fund his war machine in Europe. Then James Madison became president. And after heated debates in Congress, in 1811, the bank's charter was not renewed. Within five months, England attacked the United States and the War of 1812 started. Benjamin Franklin talked about one of the leading causes of the Revolutionary War, not just being the tax paid to England, but also the control that the bankers of England had over the colony. There are a lot of evidence to suggest that the War of 1812, it was the United States again having to fight off the British banking interest for control over the money supply. The war ended in 1814 without success for Great Britain since they were fighting a war on two fronts. I've mentioned that Napoleon funded his war machine with the Louisiana Purchase. So the British were fighting Napoleon in Europe and the United States in North America. In 1816, James Madison, one of the founding fathers and framers of the Constitution, signed a bill to establish the Second Bank of the United States. The charter was the same as the first one for 20 years, and again, 80% of the stock was held by private investors, and again, some of them were foreign investors as well. The bank was headquartered in Philadelphia. Then Andrew Jackson became president. He was extremely opposed to a central bank and was going to do everything in his power to end the bank. The bankers knew this and wanted to push a bill through their representatives that they had bought and paid for in Congress to renew the bank's charter actually before it was supposed to expire. 
So before Jackson's re-election, they tried to push it through, but he vetoed the bank as he wanted nothing to do with the bank and wanted its charter to expire. Andrew Jackson also stated, Controlling our currency, receiving our public monies, and holding thousands of our citizens' independence would be more formidable and dangerous than a military power of the enemy. Andrew Jackson ran his re-election campaign on Jackson and no bank, and for the first time in U.S. presidential history, he took the campaign on the road. Jackson won in a landslide in 1832. Then Andrew Jackson started to withdraw the country's money from the Second Bank of the United States and move the money into state-chartered banks. Nicholas Biddle, who was the head of the Second Bank of the United States, went head-to-head with Jackson and threatened to actually crash the U.S. economy if the charter was not renewed. He was quoted as said, he will make money scarce by contracting the money supply. And he did exactly that, and panic ensued, and a deep depression started in the United States. Biddle was caught bragging in public of crashing the economy, and this turned public opinion against him and his fellow bankers. In 1834, Congress voted to not renew the bank's charter. Jackson formed an investigating committee and actually physically sent the committee to the bank to grab the books and communications between the bank and congressmen. Jackson figured that there was bribery and coercion used by the bankers to control certain congressmen. Jackson was quoted in saying in a meeting between him and the bankers, Gentlemen, I too have been a close observer of the doings of the Bank of the United States. I've had men watching you for a long time, and I'm convinced that you have used the funds of the bank to speculate the breadstuffs of the country. When you won, you divided the profits amongst you, and when you lost, you charged it to the bank. You tell me if I take the deposits from the bank and annul its charter, I shall ruin 10,000 families. That may be true, gentlemen, but that is, a, that is your sin. Should I let you go on, you will ruin 50,000 families, and that would be my sin. You are a den of vipers and thieves. I've determined to rout you out, and by eternal, bringing down his fist on the table, I will rout you out. Andrew Jackson paid off the national debt in 1835 and was the first president to do so. He survived a failed assassination attempt shortly after that in 1835. In 1836, the bank's charter expired. Andrew Jackson killed the bank, and Nicholas Biddle was arrested for fraud. You can see why it's quite ironic that there's a big public discussion to remove Andrew Jackson's face from the Federal Reserve note. I think he's been rolling in his grave ever since his face was put on a Federal Reserve note. For 77 years, the United States did not have a central bank. In 1910, a small group of powerful people left the New Jersey railway station and headed to Georgia and then to Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. Bloomberg actually wrote a story about this called The Secret Meeting That Launched the Federal Reserve, Echoes, and here's a couple of excerpts from that article. The Jekyll Island collaborators knew that public reports of the meeting would scupper their plans. The idea of senior officials from the Treasury, Congress, major banks, and brokerages, along with one foreign national, slipping off to design a new world order has struck generations of Americans as distasteful at best and undemocratic at worst, and would have been similarly received at the time. So the meeting of the minds was planned under the ruse of a gentleman's duck hunting expedition. Senator Aldrich, an archetype of his age, 
was a personal friend of J.P. Morgan, and Aldrich's daughter was married to John D. Rockefeller Jr. He found in the European Central Banks a most useful model. Although the financial system in the U.S. was functional enough to stoke the engines of a growing industrial economy, it was a classic example of the persistence of interim solutions. The models Aldrich found in Europe were more efficient and effective. What he lacked was a way to graft those characteristics onto the American economy. Aldrich invited the men he knew and trusted, or at least men of influence, who he felt could work together. They included Abram Andrew, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Henry P. Davidson, a business partner of Morgan's, Charles D. Norton, President of the First National Bank of New York, Benjamin Strong, another Morgan friend and the head of, of Bankers Trust, Frank A. Vanderlip, president of the National City Bank, and Paul M. Warburg, a partner in Kuhn, Lub and Company, a German citizen. The men made their way to the island by private railway car and ferry. The collaborators spent 10 days on Jekyll Island. What emerged was an idea for something called the National Reserve Association, which would act as a central bank, issuing currency and holding members' banks' reserves. While it would handle government debt, it would be a private institution. The U.S. Treasury would have a seat on the board, but it would exercise no further oversight. Today, a central bank is the global standard. All 887 members of the International Monetary Fund have them. In November 2010, Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke held a press conference on Jekyll Island to celebrate the centennial of the meeting. Aldrich and his colleagues would have been proud of their accomplishment, but mortified by their publicity. In 1913, the Federal Reserve Bank came into existence through the Federal Reserve Act. The Federal Reserve Bank has regional banks and its shareholders are member banks. It has stockholders. No other federal agency has stockholders. A share of stock represents ownership in a corporation. Stockholders are the owners of that corporation. And this is from the Federal Reserve website. Dividends are, by law, paid to the member banks at a maximum rate of 6%, determined in part by each member bank's total assets. The Federal Reserve has 12 regional banks. Each bank has its own board of directors. Two-thirds of the board of each bank is appointed by commercial banks like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. These board of directors appoint the committee members that set monetary policy. As George Carlin said, it's a big club and you ain't in it. Its role as marketed to the people is to set monetary policy, control the country's money supply, maintain price stability, and then control inflation and maintaining high levels of employment. You can think for yourself and just judge the Federal Reserve for yourself. I'm not going to tell you what to think, just based on the criteria that they've outlined. But back to the initial question of our podcast, how is money created? Let's look at a couple of steps of how money is created. The Treasury issues a bond for the amount of money that they need. Treasury bonds add to the national debt, and the taxpayers are collateral for this debt since the debt is already far greater than all the assets in the United States. So further generations have to pay back that debt. Just on a side note, George Washington wrote in one of his letters to James Madison, no generation has the right to contract debts greater than can be paid off during the course of its own existence. 
the next step is there's a bond auction that's held where big banks buy the bond issued by the treasury and make a profit on it by earning interest on that bond. Then through an open market operations, the banks sell the bonds to the Federal Reserve for a profit. To pay for the bonds, the Federal Reserve writes a check, and here's where the beauty comes in. There's no money to cover that check. The Fed always has a zero balance. So when you and I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in our account to cover that check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there's no bank deposit on which that check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it's creating money. The banks then take those checks and currency is created and the banks take that currency to buy more bonds. So they take the check, currency is created, and then the banks take that currency as the middleman and they go back to the treasury to buy more bonds. So the bond is an IOU. Banks have the currency and buy the IOU and sell it to the Federal Reserve for another IOU, their check. It's a lot of IOUs going around. The Treasury and the Federal Reserve basically swap IOUs with the big banks as middlemen. So the banks are always in the middle. The Treasury goes through the banks. The banks then take it to the Federal Reserve. Then from the Federal Reserve, it goes back to the banks and then back to the Treasury. Money is created out of thin air. I would say it would be better if money grew on trees because trees actually take longer to grow. So that's why the U.S. dollar has lost 98% of its value since 1913. To put the system on steroids, fractional reserve banking comes into play. So under fractional reserve banking, the banks only have to have a fraction of reserves. If you put $100 in the bank, for instance, they only need to keep 10% of that as reserves so they can lend out 10 times that amount on their books. This can continue in perpetuity. So reserve requirements can also range from 10% all the way down to 0%. So this is where the most money is actually created. If your head's spinning right now, mine was spinning too when I first learned this. People that have access to this newly created currency also that is created has a huge advantage over the person that is at the bottom of the pyramid in the street. They can position themselves in income-producing assets that have cash flows that increase with rising prices. The person at the bottom of the pyramid is the one that gets fleeced through higher costs and everything that he needs for survival, like food and clothing and shelter. So that's why the wealth gap is also growing. This system actually perpetuates the growing wealth gap. The rich will keep on getting richer through this, and the middle class and the poor will keep getting fleeced because they have access to this nearly created money far lower down the pyramid than the guys right at the top. And this brings me to what inflation is. It's not rising prices. That's the result of inflation. Inflation is the expansion of the currency supply, and deflation is the contraction of that currency supply. If you can create money, you have no problem to fund wars, social programs, and pay the interest on debt that you already have. There's always going to be more debt in the system than currency, because if you borrow a dollar out of existence, and to pay back that dollar that you borrow out of existence, you need to borrow another dollar out of existence. So if the money was created from nothing, then you have to create more money from nothing just to pay back the money that you borrowed that was created out of nothing. I know, my head's spinning now as well. This is what a debt-based money system looks like. You can never pay it off, and you'll need to keep borrowing. Otherwise, the system implodes, and what happens if it crashes 
like the financial crisis in 2008, is, of course, you guessed correctly, they create more money out of nothing <laughs> to bail the big banks out. Now that you know how this money system works, you know that when you hear politicians talk about a debt ceiling and argue back and forth, it's just for show. There'll never, ever be a debt ceiling. It has to keep going up. That's why Congress in the United States, for instance, didn't have a budget for six years. I think they just recently passed one in 2015. And even though that they passed that budget, they can't stay within that budget. It's impossible. I can hear what some of you are saying out there. Well, Bill Clinton balanced the budget. Well, if you take a closer look under Clinton, too, the national debt kept on growing. So how did he balance the budget if the national debt kept on growing? So because of this debt-based money system, Bubbles are constantly created in assets because the currency has to keep going somewhere, whether it be in tech, stocks, housing, and the stock market. Once the system cracks and the debt cannot be serviced from the bottom up, the bubble pops. A perfect example of this was the 2008 housing bubble and the financial crisis. In Mr. Griffin's book that was first published in 1994, he also stated, that bailouts of the big-to-fail banks was part of this whole game. There is, however, a new model that has been created, bail-ins. And it's now been established, actually, and tested in Cyprus. And we now see provisions for these bail-ins in the recently passed Dodd-Frank Act in the United States. Many countries, European countries, American countries, countries around the world, have similar provisions in similar bills. So we'll discuss this with Mr. Griffin in our interview today. So if you really want to learn more about central banking and how it works and its, and its detailed history, I would highly recommend The Grunge of Giants by Mr. R. Buckminster Fuller. And the grunge stands for Gross Universe Cash Heist. Then Houston's Mullins also wrote The Secrets of the Federal Reserve, Mike Maloney has a fabulous video that I'll put the link in our show notes called The Biggest Scam in the History of Mankind. And a documentary that I would recommend, too, is the Money Masters documentary. Again, I'll put the links in today's show notes. My goal of today's show was not to depress you or make you feel hopeless, but to inform you and share information. Knowledge is power, after all. And knowing how this game works, you can approach your financial life differently. Again, please do your own research and form your own opinion. I do not want to tell you how to think and what to believe. There's a ton of information out there. Because of the system that we're living in, I believe the only way to provide financial security and true freedom for yourself and your family is to create income streams and cash flow from assets that you create. These income streams will increase with inflation. These assets will also protect you regardless of what happens to the monetary system in the next couple of years. In episode four with Vinish Bindi, we were talking about money and what money is. It basically is the exchange of value. So whether it's gold or silver, U.S. dollars, euros, Bitcoin, and all the other cryptocurrencies, people will always exchange value with one another. So regardless of what the medium of exchange is, the value exchange will take place. And if you have these assets, you can provide value for others and receive value back in return. In episode four, we also spoke about how the monetary system changes every 30 to 40 years and how we pretty much do right now for another change. But now to our interview with the guest of the day, Mr. G. Edward Griffin. Now, I have to say I have a degree in history and economics and an MBA in finance. And when I read Mr. Griffin's book, I 
pretty much realized that I didn't know anything about how money really works. So Mr. G. Edward Griffin is a writer and documentary film producer with many successful titles to his credit. He's listed in the who's who of America. He's very well known because of his unique talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that all can understand. He's dealt with such diversified subjects as archaeology and ancient earth history, international banking, internal subversion, terrorism, the history of taxation. And Mr. Griffin has woken up a lot of people with his research on central banking, especially and how the Federal Reserve System really works in his book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. Before we are joined today by Mr. G. Edward Griffin, just a reminder that you can download any book for free when you try Audible for 30 days. You can grab a free trial and audio book download at cashflowninja.com forward slash free book download. And my friend Minesh Bindi from Gold and Silver for Life is hosting a webinar, Three Steps to Cashflow Gold and Silver. Minesh is showing people how to use their gold and silver holdings to create income streams. You can register for the webinar at CashflowNinja.com forward slash GoldSilverWebinar. All of our shows and show notes can be accessed at CashflowNinja.com. You can also join our community and mailing list by texting the word CashflowNinja, one word, all capitalized, to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to the Cashflow Ninja Podcast with your host, MC Lobsher. You must be prepared to ignite. I'm honored to have Mr. G. Edward Griffin on the show today. Mr. Griffin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate being invited. Can you please share a little bit about your background and your journey and what revelation led you to write and expose how the world's monetary system really works? Oh, sure. I'd be glad to. Uh, everyone likes to talk about themselves, I suppose, but that's the least important part of this story. But in a nutshell, uh, MC, I, uh, I really didn't uh, expect to be uh, doing anything this profound or this uh, complicated on money. Uh, back in the day, as they say, uh, when I was just a, a young fellow trying to uh, figure out what the heck I was supposed to do with my life, I had uh, decided I would start uh, applying some of the skills I learned in school, which was uh, I went to the University of Michigan and learned something about communications and television. I worked in a television station in Detroit for a while, so I thought that was my field. And, um, and so I decided I would uh, start to produce uh, little bootstrap-type documentaries on items that uh, were intriguing to me. Well, um, in those days, uh, and we're talking about the 1960s, uh, a documentary um, wasn't as developed as it is today. And certainly in my um, financial category, it meant what we used to call film strips. <laughs> and those were little strips of film, like 35 millimeter uh, film, and with a series of single uh, frames on them, very much like a slideshow. And uh, there was usually a recorded soundtrack that was uh, played on a big disc and later on on tape recorders. And every time it was time to advance the uh, frame to the next one, there would be a beep in the soundtrack. <laughs> and there was some poor soul sitting there at the projector that turned the wheel to the next uh, uh, frame. Now, that's, that's the kind of... Uh, so-called documentary that we were producing in those days. So anyway, that that's a little side trip, and I, I enjoyed thinking about it. But anyway, um, so I decided I would produce a, a documentary of that nature on the topic of uh, inflation. 
and I knew there was something funny about inflation that uh, most people had no idea, including me, uh, of what caused it. Uh, we all thought that it was caused by somebody uh, in the um, in the market. You know, if prices were too high for food, for example, uh, the inclination was to blame the farmer. Well, he's making too much money. He's charging too much. We, we used to think for uh, growing things, and the farmer would say, "No, no, we're going broke. It's the middleman. They." they they hammer us down into the ground. They don't pay us enough, and they mark it up to the grocery stores and so forth. The grocery stores said, oh, no, no, not us. It's the unions that are driving us out of business because the wages are too high. And everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. And uh, I, I had a feeling there was something fishy about that. So I thought I would get to the root of it. I decided to do a documentary on inflation. I never did do the documentary uh, because I got distracted by other things. But in the process, I had acquired a lot of research, and I filled a couple of uh, banker boxes. I guess in those days, we didn't have banker boxes, but they were cardboard boxes with uh, right. papers and, and books and uh, recordings and things like that. A few years later, maybe five or six years later, I got an invitation from a, a group of literally little old ladies in Pasadena. Um, they had a study group there on uh, on taxes uh, how you know it was an anti-tax kind of a little study group they were not activists they were just uh, a study group and they wanted me to um, come and speak to their group on taxes and I said well you know I don't know much about taxes uh, as such uh, except that they're too high and uh, I'm again them but uh, other than that what can I say but I could tell you something about a hidden tax oh what's that they said well that's called inflation it's a tax, and uh, you have no control over it, but you pay it whether you like it or not. Oh, that's good. And, of course, the idea was that they just wanted a free speaker, and that was me. So uh, they didn't care too much, I don't think. Uh, but anyway, I, I dug into my closet and pulled out those boxes of research material, and, and I was amazed at what I had acquired. And um, I hadn't been through all of it, but I did the couple of days before that. I went through all of that stuff, and I was overwhelmed with the information that was sitting in those boxes. So I cobbled together a presentation on the hidden tax called inflation, and it went over pretty well. And they said, gosh, that's very good, uh, uh, Edward. You ought to uh, put that on the road. Well, that's always a mistake uh, to tell a guy that he's got something good in order to put it on the road because chances are he will put it on the road, which is <laughs> what I did. And we that evolved into a series of uh, one-day seminars, actually, called A Crash Course on Money. Very highly received. I was happy about that, and I felt I was imparting some valuable information. And uh, But then it dawned on me in the question-and-answer period after these seminars. People were asking me very specific questions relating uh, to the real market. They wanted to know what I thought they should do. You know, these little old ladies, not only in Pasadena, but all over would come up and they'd say, you know, um, I'm a widow and I've, I've got this nice little nest egg, but it's it's highly leveraged. I, I'm in debt, but I own some income producing property. Should I sell my property and get out of debt and put all my money into gold or specific questions like that? And I, I realized I was a fraud because I had no idea what they should do. All I knew was what caused inflation. 
So I stopped giving the seminars and I enrolled in a course um, and I, I got a CFP designation, a certified financial planner designation, um, not because I wanted to become a financial planner, which I never did. It was not my intent. But I thought that would be a, a good way for me to get up to speed on the real world of markets and investments so I could talk intelligently to these people. So I did that. And then that was the beginning of uh, of a seven-year project to write the book. So it was a long, involved process. And had I known what was involved at any point along the way, I probably would not have uh, dared uh, to undertake it because it was much bigger than I thought. So it's like so many projects, MC, with everyone, I think, you just wander into something and you have no idea where the path is going to take you. But uh, And you'd be afraid to do it if you knew where it was going. But once you're there, you're very happy that you did. So true. And Mr. Griffin, in your book, you lifted the veil on the Federal Reserve Bank and what it really is. Can you give my listeners an overview of the Federal Reserve, what it is, what it is not, and how it was established and conceived? That's the core of the topic, the historical side of it anyway. And it's fascinating. Uh, you know, I tried to write uh, this book not the way so many other books have been written on the Federal Reserve, which are highly technical treatises. Uh, it seems like... Uh, Everyone's written on this topic, and they get they get lost in the labyrinth of discount rates and the discount window, how many members on the board of directors, who appoints them, and the technical stuff, and uh, you know the the loan to asset ratios and all of these things. And I didn't see the topic that way. I saw it as a whodunit. Uh, this was to me one of the greatest crimes in history. It was the crime of legalized theft, plunder. I'm not exaggerating in any way when I use those words. Legalized plunder, to me, is a very soft phrase. I could think of other ways of describing it that are probably more accurate but less socially acceptable. Uh, it was a crime, a huge crime, and I thought, well, this, let's talk about the crime, what motivated the criminals, what the prize was, why they were doing this, what impact that has on its victims, even though Though many of uh, us did not know uh, what uh, you know what what price we were paying, so uh, that's how I wrote the book as, as a crime, uh, who done it, and I figured out who did it and where the body is buried, and so I wrote the book as a series of stories, uh, talking about the people involved and their lives and their motives and what they did and what happened and so forth, and uh, so that was. Um, what how I approached the topic, and uh, it uh, it turned out to be a wise thing, I think, because we've had a lot of a lot of support for the book over the years. It was published in 1994, and I was just sort of chuckling and and cackling as I looked at the latest uh, printing that came in from the uh, printer just the other day. Um, MC, it's up to the 40th printing now. And I, it is fantastic because I thought when I did finish this thing, oh my gosh, what have I done? I had a garage full of books. I had I'd taken my last dime to buy. And I turned to my wife and I said, Pat, what have we done? We have a garage full of books and nobody's going <laughs> <laughs> to know about it. Or if they knew about it, they wouldn't care to read it. So anyway, that turned out to be uh, fortunate. Um, but anyway, that uh, so when I say it's a crime, let me get into specifics. First of all, the question you raised is, what is the Federal Reserve? 
When I started down this project, like everyone else, I thought the Federal Reserve was a government agency. Well, it turns out it's not a government agency. It's uh, They call it the Federal Reserve, but it's about as federal as uh, Federal Express. And um, they had the word reserve on it, and there are no meaningful reserves anywhere in the system. It's all leveraged. Little tiny reserves don't amount to a hill of beans, and they just literally create money out of nothing with no reserves behind it. Except, well, there is there is a, a very important reserve, but it's not a financial reserve. It's a political reserve. See, what the Federal Reserve is is a cartel. It's no different than a than a banana cartel or an oil cartel, peanut cartel. It just happens to be a banking cartel, and cartels always have a problem, uh, and that is how to enforce participation. They have to enforce uh, that its members obey the rules of the cartel. Now, sure, there are stories, and I'm sure they're real, that they do have you know, underground uh, illegal ways of enforcing cartel agreements. Guido shows up and uh, you know, beats you up if you don't do what you're supposed to do. Or the assassins show up and all that sort of thing. We read about those things in history books. And, and I believe they really happen. But the cartels don't rely so much on that as a means of enforcement of their regulation. Because the, see, everybody has to agree, for example, to fix the same price on their product or that kind of thing. And it, it may be in the case of oil, for example, that let's say Mexico is uh, needing money. The government is so deeply in debt it needs money. So it will... It will lower its price of oil in order to grab more of the market and get more cash flow. In other words, it starts to act like a free market operation instead of a cartel. And how in the heck are you going to enforce that Mexico uh, uh, charge a certain fixed rate for its oil? You can't do it. That's always a problem uh, with cartels. So um, the preferred method is to get the government involved. All cartels and monopolies like to go to the government and under the guise of protecting the people, protecting the people is always the cry. They get the politicians to pass laws to fix the rates and to, to uh, use the power of government to enforce the rules of the cartel. Now, in that way, once you do that, all the members of the cartel have to agree or they're breaking the law and now the government sends the police in. And now that's how cartels enforce their agreement is by bringing governments into the arrangement as partners. That's exactly what happened with the Federal Reserve System on the Jekyll Island back in 1910. Jekyll Island is a small private island off the coast of Georgia, or it was private in those days. It was uh, owned by a small group of billionaires from New York, people like um, John D. Rockefeller and you know J.P. Morgan's group and things like that. Uh, these were the, the richest people in Wall Street, the tycoons. It was a resort island, and it's where they went with their families to get out of the cold of New York. So uh, they went to Jekyll Island back in 1910, and they created this cartel, and that's exactly what they did. They decided uh, – they said to each other, basically, gentlemen, we are competitors. All, they represented the biggest banks and financial interests of the United States and also of the world. They brought in the Rothschilds, for example. There were several people there who were 
uh, representatives of the Rothschilds, just for example. So these are the biggest financial dynasties of the world and certainly of the United States. And when they got to Jekyll Island, uh, they sat around a table and they said, basically, gentlemen, we are competitors. But let's stop competing. This is the new enlightened age. Let's uh, get together. Let's form an association. Let's not call it a cartel. Let's just call it an association. And in fact, let's call it the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> and uh, we will write out the rules and regulations that will guide our own action. And it'll allow us to control the entire field of banking and interest rates and money supply and all of that to our uh, best interests, but we'll have to sell it and package it so that it looks like we're doing this in the name of protecting the people. That basically was the scam. That's what they did. They, they created a cartel agreement that very much favored uh, those uh, powerful banks and allowed them to control their, their market without having political interference. But they made it look like it was a political body so that the people would be content thinking that finally there were laws in place that would control those big bad bankers. Well, they didn't realize that the laws were in place, but that the laws were written by the big bad bankers. And that that's the reason they met on Jekyll Island, by the way, because it was secret there. There were no prying eyes. It was just a few of these guys. There were six of them. And they sat around the table. And it was very private. And they denied to the outside world for a long time afterward that they even were there. They said, no, no, there was no such meeting. That's just nonsense. That's just foolishness. And then later on, they admitted, yes, well, we went. But it was a duck hunting trip. And then finally, much later, after the Federal Reserve was passed and into law and became revered by the American people as a great American institution, well, then they started to admit that, yep, we had the meeting. And it became funny after a while because when I was reading all these books, many of them written by these men themselves, it, it seemed like they were competing finally for um, the position of being uh, revered as the most important and influential person at the meeting. And all of the details came out in their private memoirs. Their biographers wrote about it eventually. Some of them wrote magazine articles that were published in the Saturday Evening Post. And if one is diligent enough and they go to the archives, you can pull out all of the intimate details of what happened on that meeting on Jekyll Island, which is why I call my book The Creature from Jekyll Island, and what happened, what their motives were, and so the story is all there. So getting back to your question, uh, NC, it, the Federal Reserve is a private cartel, and it's all dressed up to look like a, fe a federal agency, a government agency. It is not. Uh, it, it does have the, the president is given the power to appoint, um, you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. That's about it. But if you'll notice, the president never selects anyone for chairman of the Federal Reserve who is not part of that um, community of uh, special banking interests. They always come from that group itself. And it's a dead giveaway when you realize that none of these chairmen from the Federal Reserve that are appointed ever come from the private telephone books of the presidents who nominate them. In fact, mm -hmm. I cannot think of any chairman who was even known to the president who appointed him. The presidents don't even know these people, and yet they appoint them. So that should get you thinking, well, how, where, why did they appoint this person? And, uh, well, now you're into influence, political influence. Who made the biggest donation to the campaign of the president? What obligations and deals did he make and so forth? And you finally come to the answer to that one. 
So that's what the Federal Reserve System is. It's a cartel. It's a it's a legalized uh, program of plunder. And it's plunder because, you see, the Federal Reserve now, or the, let's call it the banking cartel, uh, now has control over the nation's money supply. Just think about right. that. Think about that. <laughs> that. And people still think, as I did when I started down this project, I thought that, well, the money of the United States government is issued by the United States government. Wrong. You know, uh -uh. <laughs> That's not it. Zero points. Yeah. Uh, the money is actually uh, – it's printed by the Treasury and uh, all of that, but it's actually upon the orders of the Federal Reserve System. The bankers say uh, to, the, to the government, they say, okay, we need so, so much more currency uh, today in order to keep a certain amount in circulation and, and keep – you know, uh, keep the banking system nice and fluid. But the currency itself is only a very small percentage of the total amount of money. Most of the money by far is uh, actually checkbook money, digital money. It, it doesn't exist in any physical form. And, uh, you know, for every dollar that's created as a, a paper, a piece of paper, uh, there are thousands and thousands of them that are created as digits. So anyway, um, all of the money, the United States money, even though it says United States of America across the top of it or United States, it has nothing to do with the United States except that it originates in the United States. But it's originated by the banking cartel that we call very reverently, we call it the Federal Reserve. And so if you have the power to create money, just think of what uh, that would be a cool authority to have. You can create right. money at will. As I go from one aspect of this to the other, I see certain hot points that, uh, in my own experience, my own uh, my own awareness came as big surprises and with a lot of exclamation points. And when I suddenly disco discovered that the banks were creating money out of nothing, I thought, well, what are they just creating it and spending it uh, on on their limousines and their yachts and so forth? And I, no, no, that's not how it works. They create the money, but it sits. It sits idly in the computers or in the vaults waiting to become money, and it's not, doesn't, it doesn't actually become official money until it is borrowed by somebody. See, that's the trick, and it's not too difficult to understand, but it's something you don't think of unless you're part of the banking fraternity. See, the banks have all this money available to them, but it's not really money until – Somebody like you or me, we walk into the bank and say, hey, Mr. Banker, we'd like to borrow some money for a new car. Well, and they say, sit down. They ask you to fill out the form. They ask all your private questions. They want to know your blood type and everything. But they don't really care because they don't have any money uh, anyway, but they're going to create it for you. And so if you look like you're a nice, reliable person and you're going to pay back plus interest, they'll say, OK, here's your um, here's your 24 or 25 or $32,000 or 40. Well, depends what kind of car you're going to drive. Hey, here's your money. Now you go buy the car. Well, what we don't realize is that that money didn't exist at all before that loan was created. And that is how the banking cartel creates money. It's literally, well, I was going to say it's out of nothing. And that's a good way of phrasing it. They create money out of nothing. But it's worse than that. They create it. Right. They create it out of debt, and that, that's what I mean when I say you have to borrow the money into existence first. So back to the point that the banks don't really spend the money they create. 
they loan the money they create and they make interest on that. And so that's how they that's how they thrive. That's how they uh, grow and prosper is with this thing called interest. And interest is a misnomer, too, because you would expect interest to be properly defined as a, a surcharge or an extra amount of money built on a loan. Well, when you analyze this process, there's no loan going on because there's no money to be loaned. The money is created. There's no money sitting in a bank to be loaned. Now, if it were, if you had a stack of gold coins or silver coins or even a stack of, of money that was backed by something of intrinsic value and you loaned that to your neighbor, that's a loan. But the banks have none of that. They have just a little tiny bit of deposits in, in the vault or on the books to make it look like they've got money. But that is nothing compared to the amount of money they loan into existence. So what this really is happening, what's really happening there is that they are creating money, not loaning money. They create money on your behalf. And if they're smart, uh, they will. Well, they're all smart. But one way of doing that is that they ask you to sign over something of intrinsic value to back up that creation of money. They may want a, a deed on your farm or your house. Or they call it a mortgage or they may want the pink slip on your car. So if you don't pay the interest that you promise, uh, they get your marbles. Uh, so they don't put anything into the deal except uh, a promise. You know, they, they're, the, they're the mechanics. Let's put it this way. They create the money out of nothing. And if you don't pay the back, they get your house. <laughs> That's right. an interesting thing right there. Um, very, interesting. very interesting. Yeah. So anyway, all of these things are what I learned and so many more uh, about the banking cartel. And it, when you come to the end of this discovery, you find out that when when I use the phrase that that this is legalized plunder, that probably is the greatest understatement of the century. Since 1971, there's no no more gold backing of any money, so then money just became debt, as you eloquently explained. Yes, that's true. And even before uh, 1971, it was pretty much that way. The ratio of uh, gold or silver to back the American currency ha has always uh, been weak, uh, although it was strong compared to the rest of the world. And so we thought it was backed by gold and silver. It, and the question is, to what extent was it backed? And the answer, right. surprisingly, is well, not very much, but at least it, had, right. but at least it had some. And uh, over the years, that that ratio kept diminishing to the point where, you know, first it was like forty uh, percent, and then thirty percent, and ten percent, and then five percent, and finally zero percent. And so, yeah, we're completely on a fiat money basis now. The other thing that I found really interesting too was the Federal Reserve Act was signed into law in 1913 that established. A the Federal Reserve Bank, and then at that same time, the year the federal income tax was implemented. Can you talk about how these two go hand in hand and the true goal of the income tax? Well, yes, um, that is a very interesting topic, and I have never really uh, pursued it very much because I don't know of any way to document my suspicions. In all of my research, I have never found any evidence uh, hard evidence in the writings of the people who were creating the Federal Reserve and the income tax. And as an aside on that one, I should say they were the same people, the same uh, politicians, the same bankers, the same little cabal, as I like to call them. I think it's an accurate description. The same cabal was uh, instrumental in promoting both of uh, those pieces of legislation. And I've studied their works extensively, 
and I've never found any written evidence by them to confirm the suspicions that I have and many others who write about this. The suspicion is that the whole purpose of the income tax uh, was to fuel the Federal Reserve, and I just don't find any evidence of that. Um, but I do find plenty of evidence to show that the income tax, first of all, I'll say what it is not, and, and they do write about this one. The income tax is not to generate income for the government, believe it or not. The income tax, according to uh, the fact that the, the fellow, who's, the, the name escapes me at the moment, but he was, a, he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, one of the regional banks. And after World War II, he was in charge of uh, a commission that devised uh, the withholding system of income tax in America. And he wrote a very uh, erudite uh, essay. It was published in a banking magazine. This is shortly after World War II now. And he said in plain language, he said, the purpose of the income tax is not to raise revenue. And I thought, what? I thought that's what it was all about. He says, no, right. no. He said, let's look. And he was writing. He was speaking to bankers now. So he was saying, basically, gentlemen, look, let's be realistic. Now that we have the Federal Reserve System in place, we can generate all of the money we need for the federal government simply by creating it out of nothing. All the government has to do is issue a bond, an IOU, a bond or a treasury note, and we take it. We, we, we'll take it. We say we buy it, but we'll just take it. And in return, based upon that little piece of paper, that IOU, we can create that amount of Federal Reserve notes and give it to the federal government. In other words, the Federal Reserve serves as a... Um, a mechanic, uh, a technician, for converting those bonds into spendable money. And that's the function they serve. So he said, basically, look, the federal government can get all of the money it needs. All we have to do is just create it for them if they'll just give us a piece of paper that, that says IOU on it or bond. And because um, we saw that happen recently after the, the crash of t uh, 2008, Congress was raising its hands to vote in billions and billions and billions of dollars to bail out the banks and everybody else in between. And nobody ever questioned where that money came from. Uh, the government didn't have it. The Federal Reserve didn't have it. But Congress was legalizing it for the Federal Reserve simply to, to create it out of nothing. And there it was. It flooded into the economy. And um, that's how it works. So, um, yeah. That, that It's amazing. So nobody ever questions uh, the need for backing it with anything anymore. This is legalized plunder because when they create that money out of nothing, these billions and billions of dollars flood into the economy and they start bidding against the other billions and billions of dollars that are already out there. Now, the supply of goods and services didn't increase at all. It's just the supply of money increased. And it would be just right. like sitting around a, a game of Monopoly and all the players are sitting there. And, you know, let's say that uh, Marvin's Gardens is selling for for $200 or $300 and we're we're bidding, but we have a limited amount of money. So we can't bid any higher than two or three hundred dollars. But now suppose and somebody comes in and dumps a whole stack of new Monopoly paper money on the board and divides it up among everybody. Now everybody's got more money. But there are no more Marvin's Gardens on the board. So all of a sudden, the price of Marvin's Gardens goes up from 200 to 
but nothing else has changed. It's just the quantity of these numbers. So the, in the real world, that's exactly how it happens. The money supply increases. And so suddenly everybody has more money. It may take a little time for it to trickle down. Some people are at the, you know, at the trough a lot sooner and, and they do much better. Government always does better than, than the people at the bottom. And the government contractors do very well. They're in the middle. And, uh, you know, all of the, the, uh, the people who are friends of the, of the, of the politicians always get these, uh, grants. They do very well. Everybody that's uh, working indirectly for the government, educational systems, for example, for example, they do well because they're they're up at the trough earlier. But by the time it trickles down to to you and me and and the guys who are working at the assembly line uh, and wherever they're working, it's uh, by that time we get the money. And we say, oh boy, we just got a pay increase. But we go to the store, and we find out that before we got there with our extra money, uh, prices have already jumped up because the, the uh, sellers have figured out that there's more money out there. The point is that the process that this triggers uh, is uh, called inflation, and inflation is merely the, the plundering of the savings of the citizens, because they're working like crazy to save money, but by the time they get around to spending it, its purchasing power has declined. And the difference between what it was worth when they earned it and what it was worth when they spent it is that little tiny margin that was plundered from them. They don't even know it, but it was stolen from them. And it was stolen by that partnership uh, between the bankers and the politicians. And the instrument of that theft is the Federal Reserve System. And, of course, if you can just create money out of thin air, too, there's not you won't have a problem to fund wars. And, of course, all the public works that you promise in the elections and so forth. So this goes in nicely hand in hand. The other thing uh, that actually made the hair on my back stood up when I was reading your book in 2009, there was a statement, bailout is the name of the game. And you spoke about bailouts. Now, we've seen a new model implemented in, for instance, in Cyprus with bail-ins, and there is some legislation in the Dodd-Frank that a lot of folks are talking about right now, which puts the bail-in provision where they can reach the savings of the bank depositors. Can you speak to this this new model? Oh, yes. <laughs> Isn't that clever? I mean, these people are really clever. They, you have to understand that... Uh, uh, we're dealing with the the top of the craft of uh, con artists here, and um, they really um, I think they deserve a medal for being the best con artists history has ever seen. <laughs> and uh, and the reason I call them con artists as opposed to just plain criminals is because although they are uh, criminals, uh, they have a way of disguising their crime so that the people think it's wonderful. <laughs> How many people are getting ripped off and stolen uh, from and plundered? And they think, oh, these are nice people. They're protecting us in some way. And they praise them. And, and uh, they go to banquets. And, and when they walk into the room, everybody stands and applauds and so forth. Then that's a con artist. If you can plunder uh, a citizenry and get them to stand up and applaud your entry into a room, you're good. And uh, this is what we're dealing with. So, yeah, the bail... Uh, the bailouts, of course, everybody understands that pretty well. Uh, banks go bankrupt because uh, they are not held responsible for their investment decisions. Uh, they they make wild loans 
uh, knowing full well because of their partnership with the politicians, they know that if these loans fail and it negatively impacts the uh, uh, the books of the bank and they go into what is officially bankruptcy because they've lost all these mythical assets, that instead of having to go out of business, they can go to Congress and being the good con artists that they are, they tell Congress – which is made up of other con artists also. And so one group of con artists from the banking side is speaking to the other group of con artists on the political side, and they say, look, we, we need um, to uh, socket to the, uh, to the taxpayers and get money enough to bail out our losses. And uh, so let's figure out a way to make it sound like we're doing the world a favor. And so they come up with stories like, oh, yes, if, if this venerable bank bails, America will collapse. It'll be terrible. The whole the whole system will collapse. Um, children will no longer have milk to drink. Um, people will be unemployed, uh, will be weak, and perhaps some uh, enemy, some foreign enemy will attack us in our moment of weakness. And the, the economy, everybody will suffer if we don't bail out the bank. And so Congress says, yes, you're right. So in the name of humanity and patriotism, we will authorize the banks to create an extra $20 billion and distribute it among themselves and will bail out the banks. So that's the bailout. And that's happened, as everyone knows now, many, many, many times. And um, even though the press is fairly dutiful in reporting this as though it is a patriotic event, um, still, it, the, the information has been trickling out so much, the average person is getting the idea that this is not a hot deal for them. So now the the con artists have said, okay, we can't do, we can't play this card anymore or not very many more times. So we better come up with a different game. And ah, they said, let's, let's call it the bail in. Now that'll confuse everybody, but, but, but because nobody knows what a bail in is. So um, they have very complex ways of explaining it. But when you strip away all of the con artist language and look at exactly what it is, uh, it is the um, the banks have gone to their partners in government and said, look, we want you guys to write a law that will legalize our plunder in this way. We are going to plunder our uh, our depositors instead of the citizens in general. We're going to just plunder our depositors. Now, they've got all this money sitting in our bank and they think it's theirs. So what we want you to do is pass a law that says, no, it's not theirs. It's ours. So that when we get into trouble financially and we need another billion dollars or so, we don't have to go to the taxpayers. And the politicians are saying that's a good idea because the taxpayers are the ones that vote us in and out of office. And, and we, we're not going to support another bailout. So, yeah, if you're going to steal money from the taxpayers, you better do it uh, another way. So the politicians are glad to hear that they have another scheme. And so they call it the bail-in. And what it simply means is that it's a means of of uh, stealing the deposits of the de of the people who put money in the bank and just taking it and saying, OK, we need it to cover our losses. Thank you very much. That's what a bail-in is all about, and it's legalized by their partners in, uh, in government. So the, the, first of all, they had to legalize it. They had to, to make a, a clear statement that the money really doesn't belong to the, uh, to the depositors. Now they, they phrase it in this way. They say, if you put money in a bank as a deposit, 
It's the same as making an investment in a company. You are now investing in the bank. So now the money is owned or it's, it's the property of the bank. Now, if the bank needs that money, just like a corporation, you buy stock in a corporation. And if, if the corporation um, it needs your money to cover some bills, it just takes your stock investment and co- uses that money to pay its bills because you gave it to them and entrusted it to them and they have legal right to do whatever they wish with it. And you just hope that they're going to produce a profit with it. Well, now, that's what the banks have decided that should be the arrangement with deposit money. And that is exactly what the governments have agreed to do, because naturally they always do what the banks want them to do. So now um, that's that's what a bail-in is. It's the legalized uh, authority to take depositor money and use it to cover the losses of the bank. And uh, now... That leads to another interesting question, which is this uh, cashless society. Because once this information gets out that this is what's happening, you know what's going to – a lot of depositors are going to say, well, why should I have money in the bank? As long as I have any meaningful amount of money in the bank, a large amount, my life savings, for example, and it's sitting there in the bank, why well, those dirty bankers could come along and just take it, and they'd be right. So – a lot of people are saying, well, I'm going to get my big deposits out of the bank. I don't, I don't want them to steal my money. So they're withdrawing money from the banks, the big depositors, and they're finding someplace else to put it. For example, maybe they're buying gold or silver or they're buying inventories. They're putting it into their businesses or they're putting it in some kind of tangible assets of some kind. And they're getting it out of the banks. Well, the banks don't like that. And so now the next push is to get their buddies in uh, in politics to pass more laws to to outlaw cash. Now, if you can't get your if if all cash if all money is uh, uh, is digital, and you're not allowed to carry money around in the form of folding bills or coins, everything is done through a credit or a debit card, a bank card of some kind. It's all digital. That means all the money in the world is in the banks, and you can't get it out unless you just literally spend it on something. But you certainly can't put it in a in a tin can and and bury it in your backyard, uh, you know. You can't put it on in your mattress. Uh, right. So that's the that's the part of the sector that the bank is now going after. They they do not want you to withdraw your money, so they're making it very difficult, and they're calling this a cashless society. Now it's supposed to be for your convenience, of course. All of these things are done for you. They they say. Right. Uh, that's that's the deal. But we know we know that the whole idea is that they. Do not want you to withdraw your money from the banks. So there you have it. It, uh, Once again, it's another example of legalized plunder. Now, Mr. Griffin, you've done fantastic work in identifying and explaining the source of the problems we have today. And you're also very active in offering solutions such as the work that you're doing with Freedom Force International. Can you talk a little bit about Freedom Force International and tell my listeners more about it? Oh, yes, I would love to do that because I'm a firm believer that this is pointless to talk about all these problems, although they're interesting and it's important that we know about them. But unless we have a solution, unless we have a, a fix then it's just kind of a waste of time, isn't it? It would be better to go and and, and go play and just hope that it doesn't collapse uh, on your watch. And as long as you, you know, you you can enjoy it and to heck with the next generation and all that sort of thing. Um, No, we got to have a fix for this. And I have gradually come to the conclusion over the years that the real fix 
is to restore this concept of freedom of choice into our lives. We've been going the other way for almost a hundred years. Uh, there is a, um, a political or I should say an ideological um, point of view out there called collectivism. And it has been growing and growing for the last hundred years. It was firmly planted in the United States during the Wilson administration. And it has grown ever since to the point where now it is the dominant political and economic and social uh, ideology of not only America, but the world. It's called collectivism. And that is the generic word for all of these isms that we don't like, like socialism, communism, fascism, Nazism, all of these things. If you peel off the labels, you'll find that there's, uh, they're 99% similar underneath. And it's those similarities that, that we need to look at. And when you add those together, it's called collectivism. In a nutshell, uh, MC, it's, it's the philosophy that the, the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good of the greater number. And that's the idea uh, behind it all. And we've been taught that in school. I was taught that at the university. And I thought, well, that makes sense. The greater good of the greater number. It sounds so wonderful. But what it, what it actually turns out to be in the hands of con artists, like we've been talking about, the con artists see that as a great opportunity. They can sell anything. They can, a con artist can sell anything under the label of being for the greater good of the greater number. And that's exactly what they do. All of the great atrocities of the last hundred years have been sold and justified under that uh, sales pitch. And um, so collectivism is really the enemy. I mean, I, I, this is such a deep topic. I'm going to just insert a little pause and make a commercial. If any of this interests your your listeners, I urge them to come to the website of uh, freedomforceinternational.org and see what we have to say on it. There's so much on this topic. But the point is that Freedom Force International is an organization that was created by me back in 2002. And the idea was to pull together people of understanding, awareness, like mind, that understood that collectivism was the problem. And therefore, we understand that the solution is to replace collectivism with its opposite. And its opposite is called individualism. And uh, there's so much to be said on that. Individualism is the concept that says that the individual is the core of society and not the group. And that right. uh, I'll just pause for a moment there and give a little uh, explanation as to why we believe that. Um, the group. What is the group? Uh, the fact, the shocking fact is that the group does not even exist. The word group is just a word. And it's an abstract idea. It's a concept in the mind. A group does not really exist outside of the mind. It's an abstraction, a mathematical concept. Uh, you cannot touch a group. You can only touch individuals. You see what I'm saying? It's like, right. it's like, the, the, yeah. it's like the word forest. There's no such thing as a forest. It doesn't really exist. There are only trees. You cannot cut down a forest, but you can cut down trees. So it's a, a difference in focus that the group doesn't really exist. Anyone that comes along and says, well, the, the group, the group has rights uh, that are um, 
bigger than the rights of individuals, they've made a terrible mistake because the group doesn't exist. And so it means that you've opened the door for some con artist uh, to, uh, to stand up and say, we or I am doing this in the name of America or something, whatever group they choose to mention, or the name of this uh, union that we belong to, or the name of this political party or whatever. Uh, and they say, as long as it's done in the name of the group, then it's okay. Then Hitler did that. Stalin did that. Lenin did that. Mao Zedong did it. All of the great criminals of the last hundred years have always created their crimes in the name of being for the group, for the greater good of the greater number. Okay. Uh, you know, take it just a lynch mob, for example. Um, nobody approves of the lynch mob, but when you think of it, it's for the greater good of the greater number. There's only one dissenting vote, <laughs> and he's at the end of the rope. So it's, it's clear to see upon analysis that some of the things that we were taught need to be reexamined, and uh, we reexamine all of those things at Freedom Force International. We want people to become aware of the underlying problem of collectivism. We want to put that word back into the vocabulary. We want people to study and realize the, the huge advantages of individualism over collectivism. And then finally, the whole purpose of the organization is to turn that knowledge into political action so that we can replace all of the collectivists who are now in control of the political systems of the world, replace them with knowledgeable and aware individualists who have no axe to grind except liberty. That's what Freedom Force International is all about. Mr. Griffin, if you can't pass on any money to future generations and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to help them build wealth, achieve success and happiness in life, what would they be? Good question, MC. You know, I, I think it's not the things we pass on. Of course, we some of us uh, would be fortunate enough to have some physical assets to pass on if we're lucky, but they'll get spent <laughs> or they'll rust or they'll be stolen or they will become of no value anymore. And the physical things don't bring lasting contentment to people. The things that really count are are your friends. And your freedom to enjoy your friends, the things that really count are enlightenment and knowledge, uh, at least for me, I guess I'm, I, I don't want to put my own uh, my own perspectives on to everybody else. Maybe maybe there are people who legitimately say, yeah, I get my biggest uh, satisfaction out of life knowing I've got a, a bigger car and a bigger house or something. But I don't know of anybody that that has that position for very long because once they get that bigger house or that bigger car, uh, then they go back to that steady uh, monotonous state of, of neither being overly happy nor discontent. They become bored. So to me, it's just, uh, it's a journey. I guess others have said it better than I life is a journey. And uh, if you can think of a journey as being an exciting event, and a chance to learn and discover and uh, understand. And if, especially if you can learn learn how to avoid some of the big, terrible mistakes and pass the tips on to the, to the kids, that's, that's a great thing. I, I found out in, in later years that, my gosh, I, I'm a teacher. I never thought of myself as a teacher, but I'm never happier than I'm sitting than when I'm sitting down with some young person 
and the younger the better <laughs> and and trying to right. and trying to explain something to them and i see that look that aha look i get a big kick out of that and i think most people do so i don't know back to your question what are the three things advice i don't know i i guess let's put it this way i think we should first of all respect nature and when i say that i'm referring to this whole body of information that interests me on on health especially natural health finding out what the universe expects us to to do with maintaining our health and that does not mean loading up on chemicals that come out of a test tube so i guess the first thing is to respect nature the second thing probably would be to question authority and then the third thing is to be true to your principles do what you know is right that would be to me the three things that would bring the most contentment that I can possibly imagine. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Mr. Griffin, how can my audience learn more about you, your work, Freedom Force International, and keep informed of all the projects that you're involved with? Well, thanks for that. Yeah, we have a cluster of uh, websites. Uh, first of all, our, our commercial site where we, uh, we sell things. We actually sell things, books and, and recordings. Uh, it's called realityzone.com. You'll find a hundred or more um, very, I think they're very important and, and very uh, enlightening uh, informational products there. That's realityzone.com. And uh, then our think tank is, um, that's the Freedom Force site, the freedomforceinternational.org. And that's where we have nothing to sell there except ideas and strategies and tactics and, you know, concepts. And uh, that's where we hope that people will catch fire, get fire in their belly and want to change the world and do something about making this a better place for the future. And that they'll want to come in and join with us in Freedom Force International. And finally, there's a third thing I'd like to mention, just if you want to sort of tippy-toe into all of this and sort of nose around and see what we're really up to, uh, we have a free subscription available to our weekly news service that I personally produce every week. And it's called um, Need to Know. Need to know news. So the the way you find that is just need to know dot news, and that'll take you to our current um, edition. And uh, I hope you'll like that. So that's where you see uh, our view of what's going on in the world. And between those three, I guarantee you, there's plenty to do. Mr. Griffin, this was an honor. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge just of this topic and providing so much value to my listeners. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you, MC. I hope I didn't bore anybody, but um, I'd be, be glad to continue this anytime. Thank you for joining me and my guest, Mr. G. Edward Griffin. Please remember to grab your free book download from Audible. You can download any book for free when you try Audible for 30 days. You can grab your free trial and audiobook download at cashflowninja.com forward slash free book download. Remember also to access your free webinar hosted by my friend Manish Bindi from Gold and Silver for Life. Three Steps to Cashflow Gold and Silver. Manish is showing people how to use their gold and silver holdings to create income streams. You can register for the webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash gold silver webinar. And you can find all of our past shows and show notes at CashflowNinja.com and also join our community and mailing list by texting the word CashflowNinja, one word, all capitalized, to 44222. That's two fours and three twos. 
If you sign up to join our community, I will email you three of the top 10 books ever written on building wealth. As always, guys, if there's any way that I can provide more value to you and serve you better, please go to our contact page and send me an email or leave me a voicemail on our SpeakPipe voicemail line. That's our show, everyone. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to The Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher. The podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness. 